So this week we have a in really interesting interview with, with Claire Ibarra, who's a graduate student at UC Berkeley, writing on Soviet-Cuban scientific exchanges. And this interview was part is part of the fall series at Reese at the University of Pittsburgh for the series that we have going on this, this semester called The Long Soviet 1970s. And this event is the second event, and it, it's entitled Soy Cuba, the Soviet-Cuban Scientific Exchanges with Claire Ibarra. It's so funny because, you know, I came of age in the 90s when uh, the image, the prestige of a scientist was like at its lowest. And both my parents were academics. My mom is a professor of biology and my dad is a professor of genetics. And they really wanted me to become a scientist. But me growing up, for me, Science and scientific work were equivalent to poverty, lack of resources, lack of opportunities, just like living with your parents till you're 50, never traveling abroad, uh, being disrespected by students. Um, and it's really sad uh, because I think like for a lot of people in my generation, that was the common uh, perception. And like lots of people would have chosen other professions, would have maybe chosen to be part of academia if they had more opportunities, if it was more respected, you know. Uh, but instead, like, yeah, professors at, the, at my university in Tomsk, they would definitely look down on uh, as well as teachers in schools and stuff. That's I mean, that's the thing, it, you know, especially considering um the the prestige of soviet science scientists right in the soviet period and i i know a lot of these there's late these kind of stories about i know this in terms of israel but also in um you know people who immigrated to the united states you know who have really advanced degrees and they don't transfer for a variety of reasons um i think most of it is just probably bias um, to you say an American or an Israeli context, and these people have to, you know, you hear these stories like, you know, scientists driving taxis in New York, or you know, scientists. I, I actually there was one woman I remember I was in Israel visiting my in-laws, and we were at a, um, just like a like a like a pharmacy, you know, store, and the woman there who was doing the makeup stuff was. Um, was a, in the Soviet Union, she was a scientist. And when she immigrated to Israel, she's working this like shit job. Um, and I could, I could see how that could have a, um, a major impact on, you know, people like yourself growing up. <laughs> uh, and do you, do you have a sense that that, that prestige is, has that turned around at all? I'm not sure, but I definitely see the government trying to, um, turn things around so for example i'm in the far east right now and i talked to some people about the far eastern federal university things might not be as uh promising for social scientists but i know that for example for people who do uh hard sciences there, there's a lot of money that's been spent on lab equipment on facilities on um foreign exchange so you know, traveling abroad, et cetera. And actually, I just recently went on a date and the guy was talking about his friend who is a physicist, I think, or um, 
neuroscientist or something. And he's pretty happy about the conditions that he's been provided uh, by the state university. And even in social sciences, I think maybe there are some positive changes. So, for example, a friend of mine, a historian who uh, is doing his PhD in Duke, he just got um, a job at Tumen State University. Uh, and I mean, I, I guess that the conditions were good enough, you know, that he decided to make that choice instead of trying to pursue a career in America and trying to, you know, fight for <laughs> or a spot under the sun um, over there. So I don't know. I mean, I've seen it too, like just going to say, um, it seems like Russian academics, the ones that I know who've remained in Russia, um, things have, have improved in many ways. Uh, there's a lot of things under pressure right now uh, with neoliberalization and also just the ideological kind of narrowing of things, but it, it, it doesn't compare to, I think probably to say, you know, 20 years ago, um, the conditions it seems are, are a lot better. I, I guess the conditions in, in many respects look a lot better, but the problems are just, are, are, there are problems, but they're different problems. I mean, obviously, like we can't even compare what is going on right now to the socialist experience and the, the freedom in terms of time and fi fi finances and um, just the kinds of projects that people could pursue um, and the neoliberalization, like you just said, today. And some of the reforms are also controversial, right? So, I mean, both my parents can talk your ears off about all the... <laughs> failures of the reforms uh, and some of, you know, the professors that taught me, like, who are still in academia, uh, you know, they talk about all these check marks that you need to hit, like publish articles in, in, um, in journals that are peer reviewed, that have a certain kind of rating, and then also dealing with uh, university's bureaucracy and then also have having like an enormous amount of teaching and not really being that well paid so yeah it's not a rosy picture for sure but I definitely feel like there are some positive changes at least compared to say 20 years ago like my 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 mom's boss he used to he used to have a, a pig on his balcony and chickens because they were not paid at all. Like in Tomsk downtown, like he had a pig on his balcony and he was, he's a professor of biology at one of the major universities in the city. So, I mean, definitely that is not happening today. So at least we have that, I guess. Okay, 
Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit the Patreon button and join the table of ranks. So, Rusana, why don't you introduce Claire for us? Sure. Claire Barra is a PhD candidate in history at UC Berkeley. Her dissertation examines scientific exchange between Cuba and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. She wants to understand how socialist ideology affected each country's approach to development, resource extraction, and decolonization. Here's Claire Barra. So, Claire, your research, as we've already stated, focuses on scientific exchanges between Cuba and the Soviet Union. And one of the things I'm, I'm always fascinated with is, is people's personal connection to their subject matter, you know, how, how they came to it. There's usually some kind of personal story. So what is your story? How did you get interested in this subject? Undergrad, in my large Soviet history lecture course, um, Yuri Soskin showed a video of Yosef Gobzun, Kuba Lyubov Maya, which had now been, you know, circulated a, a lot more thanks to Anne Gorsuch's article um, in the American Historical Review. But to see uh, Soviet citizens and Soviet artists really trying to interpret Cuban culture for themselves and put on this uh, amazing performance, it it just got me interested in what is the actual relationship between these two countries? Because unfortunately, in our high schools, um, there's an obsession with the Cuban Missile Crisis, which, of course, is a very important event. But um, even that single event doesn't leave room for Cubans because Khrushchev and uh, Kennedy sort of made the deals without Fidel at the table. Um, so from there, just trying to unpack that larger relationship. And uh, as I started looking um, to see, okay, well, how were Soviet citizens getting to Cuba? I saw that the majority of them were doing so via scientific exchange or student exchanges as well. And so that got me started on trying to understand this larger relationship where the Soviet Union assumes to be sort of big brother coming in to help Cuba's little brother um, with, with development in a way. But the reason that this story resonates with me personally is that Cuba's history of higher education and science and technology, especially after the revolution, it, it's a story of helping the last become first. So for those who ordinarily did not have access to higher education, uh, who where something like a university was a completely foreign base, the Cuban revolution made that a very natural space, a home for any Cuban. And to become a Cuban scientist was really the, the best model of the revolution that you could be. So this, this connection between upward mobility and 
how scientists can be models of of a utopian society. Uh, it's it's led to um, now writing a very large dissertation. Um, you know, you you already pointed to something, and and here, you know, uh, you'll have to forgive my my lay understanding of the uh, relationship between the Soviet Union and Cuba. As you said, you know, there is the 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 relationship really focuses on the Cuban Missile Crisis by certainly a key moment in the Cold War. However, you know, and, and this goes to my lay understanding, is that the Cubans are passive, right? The Soviets are this, you know, and the narrative is part of Cold War propaganda, right? Is everybody's, these people are puppets of the Soviet Union. Um, and, and you clearly, as you said, want to bring the Cubans back into the conversation, right? And back into that history. So talk about what are the, the how would you characterize the Cuban-Soviet relationship after the revolution? Yeah, great question. Um, the relationship isn't, it isn't so zero sum that as the Soviet Union gained some standing from something like the Cuban Missile Crisis, then Cubans are automatically losing. Um, in fact, that very event caused some tension between the two that would, uh, between the two countries that would continue throughout the 1960s, that Fidel did not want to get rid of the missiles because of his revolutionary stance that uh, world revolution should continue and it was okay to take a more aggressive stance. So that moment, even, even as it's seen as a place where Cuba may have been passive, um, when you look at the actual reverberations of that moment, it actually causes a lot of tension and debate that makes the Soviet Union a little more wary of Cuba's commitment, both to the Soviet Union and to socialism as they see it. Now, you said that uh, science becomes like the, the scientist, and, and here people who are familiar with the Soviet Union will relate to this. The scientist is kind of the emblem of the revolution, right? Um, but, you know, the revolution in 1959 in Cuba has a profound impact on the Cuban sciences. So why don't you give us some context uh, for, for how did the revolution impact scientific work and, and scientists and education in Cuba? Absolutely. So one sort of misnomer that occurs in, in Cuban historiography, um, or even in the writings from Cubans themselves, is that science was practically non-existent before the revolution, which of course is untrue because many of the scientists who were trained in the 40s and 50s become the heads of the Academy of Sciences after the revolution. But through the revolution, there is a much more explicit uh, ideological point in, in their work because the revolution, as it was outlined in Fidel's infamous speech, History Will Absolve Me, back in 1953 when he had been arrested. He makes a very clear connection to scientific advancement and technological advancement as a way to both modernize the country, so bringing electricity to the most rural and isolated places of the country. He even mentions nuclear energy as a possibility in 53. Um, and he ties this not just to modernizing the country, but also if we have access to our own utilities, which at that moment were completely monopolized by U.S. companies, then we can start to truly decolonize and become more independent. 
And so after the revolution and that speech, I should say, pretty much served as a map for what Cubans should do and what policies would come out of the revolution. Um, but scientists after 1959, their work had to explicitly uh, speak to a larger audience. And it, they had to prove that whatever research they were doing was going to benefit the majority of Cubans. So they take this stance where they say capitalist science, in contrast, is the practice of science where you can hypothesize about things and uh, do these lofty experiments, but it doesn't really have any real world application that is going to change something um, for the rest of society and have sort of that real world impact. Uh, socialist science, on the other hand, starts from the point of whatever it is that we, we are researching or developing or investigating, it will make the lives of Cubans better. And it will also serve the economy so that we can continue to develop, modernize, and then the ultimate goal, decolonize. But does, does the revolution serve as a kind of break? Like what happens to the scientific, you know, profession writ large as a result of, say, immigration, people leaving because of the revolution, the need of, you know, the vacuum that occurs as a result? Um, how, how does that work? There is. A large exile um, between 1959 and 1961. And it's this wave of Cubans that tend to be either upper middle class or um, just extremely wealthy. But also those were the folks who were traditionally given access to higher education. And that included learning sciences, practicing sciences, and even in the U.S. So because they saw the revolution as a threat to their wealth. Many of them did leave, um, not just to Florida, to uh, Spain as well, or to other parts of the country of the U.S. And there is somewhat of an effect of a brain drain, but I, I myself am careful to highlight the scientists that did stay because they, many of them saw this as an opportunity as well. And so maybe there weren't as many individuals who were trained to start up an entire uh, research institute. But those, those sort of things, if they existed before the revolution, they were so disconnected from one another. And um, it took, it actually took until 1962 for Cuba to sort of rebirth the Academy of Sciences with the goal of sort of bringing all of these research institutes and different centers, bringing them under an umbrella organization where they can all be in contact with one another, but also have primary place where they can ask for resources and um, actually develop their projects. I want to go back to have you go into a bit more about the role of science and the scientist in socialist construction, because you've already you already hint, you know, mentioned this a little bit, but I'd like a little bit more detail is, you know, as you said, the scientists had to re, you know, I don't know the word I'm thinking of it. It has to be more humanist, the application of, of science, and it has to serve for the development of the country, which will you know, benefit, lift up everyone. So talk more about like, and, and here I, I actually am interested in how scientists understood themselves as these figures 
uh, and their importance in socialist transformation of Cuba? So uh, these these scientists, first they become sort of the emblem of the revolution because they are the people who are making the things happen to keep the revolution alive. So development in the economy is only going to happen if you have the appropriate geologists to access mineral resources and be able to use that, whether it's in um, the distillation of crude oil that they begin to get from the Soviet Union, or say um, physicists who are trying to get nuclear physics to Cuba in a in a powerful way. But so scientists are the source of the country's economic development, of course, with the help of technology and technicians. But they're also seen, and this is where it's actually a fascinating connection to the Bolshevik Revolution, is that uh, there is this imagining of a new man that is supposed to come out of the revolution that is cultured and yet selfless, that their moral values are what will guide them through their work. So... Uh, the scientist is seen as the person who can also be an emblem of the great rewards of a better educational infrastructure, which is also a boon to the revolution. Like, look, here we are. We've made education accessible to everyone. You can go from working on a farm to being a scientist. There's a narrative of upward mobility. But also, they, yeah, they they get to... Uh, because of their exposure to more experiences, and especially later on in the in the 60s and the early 70s, they get to travel a lot um, to the socialist camp. They become like more cultured, which eventually, yeah, it, they become sort of that symbol of the new man. Oh, that's that's really interesting that that they you have there is that interesting parallel where it's really about the creation of these new people. So let's let's bring the Soviet Union into the the story since you mentioned it. Um, and science, Cuban scientists and students, as well as others from Latin America and Africa and the Middle East, et cetera, Asia, uh, they begin studying the Soviet Union uh, in the early 1960s. What was their experience like? Like, take me through, you know, A, how did somebody get the opportunity to go? And then once they got there, what was their experience? Yeah, so Cuban students were often... Usually, once they made it to the university, uh, they were selected based on their involvement in whether it was their their communist youth groups or uh, just their general aptitude um, when it came to their studies. But uh, their ability to really speak to the morals and values of the revolution, that was what got them the spot to be one of the becarios, one of the one of the students who received aid to then go abroad. Um, and this may be more, more so in the, in the late 70s and early 80s, but one, one Cuban fellow that I did an interview with mentioned that they would put all of the Cuban becarios on a big boat. Um, and so all of, all of these Cuban citizens are like 17, 18, 19, um, and they put them on this boat and send them to Moscow or Leningrad. Um, and 
he described it as just like a big party boat <laughs> yeah, because they don't know what to yeah i know i mean it sounds fun but <laughs> but um they don't they really don't know what to expect once they get there um and i should say the sort of official line of what cubans experienced uh once they arrived in the soviet union um the soviet embassy in cuba actually developed a magazine to be able to follow some of these students but Every single article was about their inexperience of snow. Um, <laughs> like almost all of the pictures include snow. Um, but also th this idea that education was a, um, the education of each individual was tied to the community as a whole. So um, anytime that they showed Cuban students interacting with Russian students, it was, oh, the Russian students are helping the Cuban students because they noticed they were falling behind, but no one can move forward unless we all move forward. So there's a lot of that. Um, but uh, from some Komsomol archive uh, documents, there's also incidents of, uh, you know, a, a Soviet student uh, breaking into the Cuban dormitories to steal a watch, to steal some jeans. <laughs> There's some of that. There's also jealousy um, over whether it was Soviet women or jealousy around Cuban women who were coming to the Soviet Union. So I see those as sort of typical interactions when you bring two folks from different places together. Especially at that at those young ages as well. What about? Do you know anything about their interact? Because one of the things, and and this is, goes to something I'm researching in the 1920s. But one of the things I find fascinating is that you know these people who are coming from different parts of the world to the Soviet Union and they're kind of plucked into this internationalist you know atmosphere where it's not just Russians they're interacting with they're interacting with people from all over the world do you have a sense of the networks and interactions that that fostered amongst uh, these Cuban student, students and scientists so at least uh when they were in the Soviet Union they would interact with some of the other students especially if they were somewhere like the people's friendship university but the reality for Cubans was that um they more often were placed in agricultural um, or technical institutes, usually in the South, so in Georgia, Uzbekistan. Um, and the reasoning was that their climate was more similar to Cuba's. So whatever we teach them there will actually apply for them. And so in those circumstances, it was much more likely, and in fact, um, some of the consumal, um officials would would note this, that the Cubans would sort of separate themselves, which uh, I can imagine, you know, this is um, not what you were expecting. You may have been expecting to go to Moscow and here you are in Uzbekistan. And but there are also, uh, you know, some some examples of some great friendships and music was one of the things that really tied them together. Like the Soviet students were so fascinated with Cuban and just Latin music in general. And so um, there are like I, I've been able to corroborate it with interviews as well as um, sort of those official line articles about Cubans in the Soviet Union. But uh, they would sit around and just play music together and dance. And like the Cuban women would be trying to get the Soviet <laughs> students to actually move their hips. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But so there's, of course, some mingling together. Um, it, it was impossible not to. Uh, but also the sort of normal gripes that you would have with living with the same people for a long time. <laughs> right, of course. And is there any like their interactions since they are, you know, in the South? So if they're in Georgia or if they're in Central Asia, what about do you have any indication of their interactions with non-Russians? Um, because the reason why I asked this, and this I'm assuming is also relevant to Cuba to some extent, is in my research of African-Americans, going to Central Asia was like a big deal because they wanted to see how do people of color live in a socialist society. Uh, and, you know, given the Afro-Cuban experience, is that is that is there an interest in non-Russian peoples in the Soviet Union? Yeah, that's a that's a great question um i haven't looked into it quite enough um and at least in sort of the official documents that i consult there there isn't a lot of talk of that but that maybe in part due to um sort of in cuba fidel had sort of proclaimed that racism no longer exists um yes <laughs> and so <laughs> to speak of race would be um a way to sort of divert uh, energy away from the revolution. So, but at the same time, um, when reading some of the publications from the Soviet Union that were made specifically for Cuba, um, there is a lot uh, included about the republics, which like sometimes an issue would have more about the republics than about like Moscow proper or, yeah, or Leningrad or wherever it was. Yeah, wow, that that'd be interesting. I, I I hope someday somebody does does some research into that uh, in a more detailed way. Um, so you you kind of you kind of hinted at a certain paternalist attitude from the Soviet side towards Cubans, and you know, these student exchanges and scientific exchange and collaboration, um, you know, it inevitably involves bridging and addressing differences, right? Of trying to come to some cultural and common language. So what were some of the common mis misunderstandings and obstacles between Cuban and, and Soviet scientists that they had to deal with? Yeah, so there, there were quite a few. Um, I mean, the first would be just the actual language. Um, while there was a Russian language teacher before 1959 on the island, um, not that many folks knew how to speak Russian. And, um, and so one of my sources, uh, an economist sort of complains that they've been having to use a Russian to English dictionary to then go from English to Spanish. And that's how they were communicating with one another. So that part, um, of course, some of the scholars would get frustrated and, um, yeah, it, it could get in the way. But then even in their ideas about, revolution like how fast can we develop um I, and this is where um it really interests me because the soviet union is at such a different place in its revolution um experience we we characterize um but of course have revised the 70s the long 70s as stagnation um it, but there is diminishing hope in the project and then with cubans it's like they're just starting out and there's all this hope and energy. And um, the scientists bringing that hope and energy into their collaboration agreements. And so a Soviet expert would say, oh, I think 
you know, conservatively, it would take eight years to properly uh, establish this laboratory. And the Cubans always come back saying, well, can we do it in five? How do, how do we push this faster? Because they're just so eager to develop and get to that place where they no longer have to rely on anyone. That's interesting, like a different conception of revolutionary time, right? And where you are on the, the revolutionary kind of the train, <laughs> for, for lack of a better term, and that the, the, the Cubans are a bit more, you know, more impatient and they want to... And also, I would imagine, too, that they... And, and maybe this is something you can comment on is, is given this is issue of impatience, of revolutionary impatience, I, would, I wonder if the Cuban scientists are also more um, uh, Promethean in the sense of, of, of like being able to conquer obstacles and nature and these things more than, and the Soviets might be a little bit more kind of hesitant or cautious. Is that also play into, especially in terms of like resource extraction and these kinds of things? Uh, so I was actually just rereading um, a chapter from this book, The Revolution from Within. Um, and this chapter is by uh, a dear friend, Reynaldo Funes Monsote. And um, it's about Cuban geologists um, and geographers dealing with this exact uh, issue of conquering nature. Because that language does show up uh, very strongly, especially in the 60s. But it continues into the early 70s. But they, they all refer uh, to this idea of conquering nature as part of a socialist um, project as originating from the Soviet Union. So maybe um, the Soviet Union may, uh, well, I, I think it would be wrong to say that the Soviet Union was entirely cautious with conquering nature at that point. Um, and uh, so in that respect, um, in fact, I, I have some Soviet, uh, uh, there was a Soviet biologist who himself said um, that he felt like he was Columbus standing where his caravels once stood. So he's very much into this idea as a conquistador who is there to conquer Cuba's unruly nature. Uh, and that, that, uh, that sort of um, analogy comes up quite a bit. and. The Soviet scientists are genuinely excited to be in a place that is new, and they want those new discoveries um, that can really push sort of the collective knowledge of the socialist camp, but also um, make them as individuals stand out uh, for their research. But Cubans also, um, you know, they use they use the term conquering nature because they, um, and I think this is very characteristic of the 1960s as a whole, um, not, not because of socialism per se, uh, that in order for a country to develop, and especially in a place in the global south, uh, instead of extracting all of your mineral resources and sending it to a place of the global north where they're going to, you know, take that primary resource and turn it into a manufactured good and then sell it back to you for like three times the price, right? Um, they want to conquer their own nature. Don't let an outsider conquer their nature. Um, and so there, there are, uh, in fact, in, in the article that will be in Cuban studies, um, there's an argument about, well, who is leading this investigation um, in tropical science? Uh, 
the the Soviets feel like they have a claim to expertise because, oh, well, we know what the climate is like in Uzbekistan and it's practically the same as here. So <laughs> like why we should, you know, and we have the we have the tools, we have the education. Uh, we should be at the head of this. And that's where Cubans really push back and say, no, this is our environment. If anyone's going to understand it, it's us. Um, yes, you're bringing the tools and we're grateful for the tools from this, you know, special socialist brotherhood, but this is supposed to be for us. Here's a, here's a question from the chat that deals with the issues of politics. And, and the question is, how does, where does politics and science come together and the way it was structured after 1959. And here, the question is is referencing, you know, say the banning of Catholic or non-communist party members from scientific positions or studying abroad. How much did politics play a role um, in in this process? Well, one 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 thing that I'm thinking is uh, some some of the folks who end up being um, part of the uh, commission for the new Academy of Sciences. They are folks who were tied to Fidel and the guerrilla movement prior to. Um, and so there is a little bit of favoritism in that way. But for the most part, in my in my own work, I see the politics more in how they express their values through their scientific work, that their political values will always be a part of science and that science is never objective because it has an impact in a way that is very social and very political. No, it sounds like that politics, as I mean, as you began, and this whole idea that politics, it has a it has a political mission. It's not there for its own sake. And it's there to serve the revolution and through the revolution, the people. So I would imagine that with that, you know, and, and the fact that you said that, you know, kind of the representatives say the study abroad tend to be those people who are engaged in the construction, active engagement in the construction of socialism. Right. And I I would also say that um, projects that wouldn't serve that purpose would not necessarily receive the funding um, or uh, just the general support to make it happen. So this this tension that you, you talked about between, um, uh, you know, Cuban scientists and Soviet scientists and their and their various different views of how things should work and who's leading who and who's inspiring who, et cetera. Um, as you say, you know, it, it very much is about the transformation of nature in the service of socialist construction. So in what ways did so Cuban scientists kind of take helpful things from the Soviet experience and diverge from the Soviet experience? Because, you know, again, back to a, a kind of standard Cold War trope, you know, the Soviet engagement with other socialist countries is to basically recreate themselves. But, you know, what, what is the story there? Cubans, Cuban scientists, and especially someone like Antonio Nunez Jimenez, who was the head of the Academy of Sciences for the first 10 years, or even Dirso Science, who was also a, a top official of the Academy and the head of multiple institutes, from the very beginning, they were explicit about we are reaching out to the Soviet Union because they're the only, after the embargo, of course, um, they're the only place that is uh, willing to offer us not not just monetary aid, but actual tech technology and machines, um, which, you know, in development theory, that is the part that um, 
has been missing for so many Latin American countries is access to those complex machines and technology. Um, and so, but the, the scientists, like the two that I mentioned from the beginning, they're very explicit about, um, you know, we're going to uh, appreciate this generosity. Um, we have things that we can learn from these Soviet, they were, they call them assessores, um, which is also a, an interesting choice of words. Instead of an expert, they, they come to assess, assess the situation. Um, but, uh, but they knew from the beginning that whatever it was that they received from the Soviet Union, even at a, at a very practical level, would have to be adjusted um, to Cuba's needs. And um, there, uh, again, to refer back to the tropical science uh, article, um, I mean, well, even with tractors, um, the factories that were making the tractors to then bring them to Cuba, they had to figure out what kind of paint to use that would withstand the humidity and the salt, which is something that in Moscow you don't have to think about as much. Um, and, uh, but there are other, um, besides paint, uh, like the way that, um, there was an attachment to a tractor that would allow them to spray pesticide as they're going through the crops. Um, and like that had to be adjusted too, uh, so that, you know, it, it wouldn't break down or sort of, um, uh, get caught or just, these different these different things about the actual machines themselves they had to really think and adapt it um but cuba cuba was very aware and very explicit um about not accepting a soviet model and one one thing that uh even the cuban historian or historians of cuba sometimes forget is that um at the tricontinental uh meeting in 1967 the soviet union uh, was not invited. Uh, and uh, Che Guevara actually called the Soviet Union like an, uh, a colonizer. Um, so they're very explicit about um, why the Soviet model won't work for them, but they're willing to accept the aid. Che's comment directly leads into another question I have, and that is, you know, you said, and you said this at the beginning, like, the, the whole idea of the revolution and then, of course, the scientific development of the sciences and the aid of the revolution and the scientists as such is really about Cuban sovereignty, right? To decolonize it from, A, its pre-revolutionary influence of the United States and, of course, its post-revolutionary experience of, you know, the Soviet Union, dependence on the Soviet Union. So how... How do you understand this relationship? In particular, like, did what did the Soviets want out of all of this? Did they try to make a claim of, you know, uh, that they deserve something in return in terms of the resources and and other things that they were helping develop in Cuba? So, in terms of Soviet uh, Soviet benefits to this relationship, uh, they definitely gained access to a new market that they could dump a bunch of consumer products, um, which a lot of those consumer products are, are now like such staple um, things of Cuban culture, uh, whether in the 80s and beyond after uh, the post-Soviet moment as well. Um, 
But at the same time, the Soviet Union was also receiving um, millions of tons of sugar, which, as we know, throughout Brezhnev's long rule, um, there were food shortages. Um, like it was the first time the Soviet Union had to purchase wheat um, to be able to feed Soviet citizens. And so they were getting access to Cuba's agriculture as well. Um, and from the more idealistic standpoint, uh, Soviet scientists make the claim that having access to Cuba's environment in general just allows the Soviet Union to have a more holistic and complete uh, compilation of knowledge about the world, which, of course, to um, to an empire, <laughs> having uh, the very like a complete set of knowledge about all of these other places in the world can help in very strategic ways as well. Uh -huh. So there are a lot of benefits for the Soviets. And and how did the and, and can you go into a bit more like how the Cubans pushed back against this these claims and to to kind of reassert the idea of decolonization or sovereignty? Yes. So um, Antonio Nunez Jimenez, uh, one of the Cuban scientists I mentioned earlier, he uh, he actually develops this uh, political vision of well, Cuba as an underdeveloped place, uh, as he termed it. Um, would become the sort of beacon of light for the rest of the underdeveloped uh, countries. So uh, the Soviet Union could never be the the sort of aid and model to the global South uh, that Cuba was able to be. And um, so Cuba, Cuban scientists were most interested in accepting Soviet aid and technology tinkering with it to adapt it to Cuba's environment, and then also recognizing that, well, a lot of places in the global South have a similar environment to us. So like, how do we make this useful to them? Um, and one of the more fascinating case studies uh, of Cuban scientists' attempts to decolonize simultaneously with Soviet aid is the pursuit of nuclear energy. So um, the Soviets are extremely helpful um, this project sort of starts in 1966. Um, the Soviets, you know, offer these practice reactors, um, and to help build a plant, but, and they think, oh, we're doing this brotherly thing. But the whole point of accessing nuclear energy for Cuba was so that they could rely less on crude oil that they were receiving from the Soviet Union. Um, and if they had their own energy resources that, in essence, were replenishable, um, they would no longer have to rely on any foreign country, most typically the global north, to provide this basic necessity for their own people. Um, so, but the Soviets, of course, uh, are totally on board with this project. Um, and even though it reaches some hiccups by, by the 80s, um, it's interesting to see how Cubans continue to advocate for their own uh, independent um, scientific uh, agenda. Here, here's a comment that just came in on the chat. Um, it, it reads, in hindsight, when I was growing up in Cuba from the 1970s to the 1990s, there seemed to have been a discrepancy in the Cuban imaginary between their perception of Soviet scientific knowledge as excellent as something one would be proud to be educated in 
and Soviet technology as backward, inefficient, and unattractive, if also sturdy, as inferior to Western technology. And it's asking if you have any insights on this seeming contradiction of sorts. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, I, I'm so glad that you brought this up. That's fascinating. Um, there is this contradiction that um, because I there's a whole cohort of of Cuban students who, through their education and training in the Soviet Union, they become um, like the ideal people to head, whether it's a scientific institute um, or even throughout education, those who it's almost similar to how even in our own time, um, a lot of folks will do their education abroad um, to give them a little more social or cultural capital once they return. Um, and, and to this day, a lot of the institutes on the island are still headed by folks who were trained in the Soviet Union. So it gives them the sort of advantage over uh, other Cubans who didn't have that opportunity. Um, but that Soviet education and science was better at the same time, when they're at home or in the field with those Soviet tractors trying to just get the job done, they break down constantly, um, which was a part of the Soviet Union's issues with agriculture throughout Brezhnev's rule was that, um, and that's why he himself became so preoccupied with uh, science and technology, because that was what was going to fix the economy. Um, and yet, in agriculture, the Soviet Union continued to suffer because the tech and the machines just kept falling apart. <laughs> now, everything we're talking about uh, in terms of the Cuban-Soviet relationship around the sciences and the relationship writ large is within the context of the Cold War, right? Cuba, for the Soviet Union, another benefit, it, it has a strategic position for them uh, in terms of its proximity to the United States. So how would you... Uh, characterize the Cuban-Soviet relationship in the as within the context of the Cold War as a Cold War par partnership. Well, certainly the Soviet Union uh, benefited from having a socialist country, in, not only in the Western Hemisphere but in the U.S.'s backyard. Um, but Fidel himself also uh, proclaimed that as such an advantage of the revolution too, that the country that once uh, took over all of our like public works and monopolized um, even like resource extraction, uh, they're just X amount of miles away from us. And yet here we are sort of, you know, uh, succeeding in spite of their efforts to uh, destroy our socialist project. Um, so that's a very real aspect, the sort of, which, is the um, the general and accepted narrative of the Cold War that you know Cuba is sort of between two uh, superpowers? But there's another side to the Cold War, which I think is um, coming out through recent scholarship, um, and especially from junior scholars, that you know the Cold War mattered beyond uh, the actual interactions with either the Soviet Union or the U.S. Um, and this is where Cuba's story is so inspiring, because even as they're dealing with one of the superpowers of the Cold War, they still 
turn their gaze towards the global south? Like, how do we use this moment to bolster the rest of the global south together and help others decolonize? Like, they see that as the central narrative of the Cold War. And that explains why um, the Cuban government actually had to convince uh, the Soviet Union to go with them and provide troops when they go to Angola. Um, yeah, and so, um, I mean, Cuba's, Cuba's, uh, Cuba's aid throughout all of Africa, but Angola, Mozambique, um, they even did some in Somalia. Uh, it took on a very similar structure as the Soviet Union's aid to Cuba. It was, we arrive, yes, with military troops in, in the context of like, there's a civil war going on, or we need to like help them uh, achieve independence. Um, but they also brought with them scientists, experts, technicians to help start laying the groundwork uh, to give them the means of developing their economy to gain their true independence um, after all of this. Um, I'll just alert you to this. Uh, someone writes in the chat that uh, regarding the Cuban perception of Soviet science and tech, I'm working on a similar project about Canadian and Cuban scientific and development projects in the 1970s. And this, what you said is a common refrain, i.e. the Canadians believe that Cubans wanted Canadian tech and knowledge because the Soviet stuff was inadequate. <laughs> um, and this person says, uh, you know, let's be in touch since you, you are part of the same Absolutely. research sphere. Um, so uh, maybe maybe they can send you their email if you don't know them already. Um, and finally... That would be wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is... Hey, I, look, I... I Put people together. This is this is great. Um, <clears throat> finally, you know, since this series is about this idea of the long seventies, the Soviet seventies, um, what about this question of stagnation? Right in the Soviet Union, you know, the common refrain of this period is a period of stagnation. Uh, what? How does this Cuban-Soviet relationship have you reflect on that that issue? Yeah. Um... This is why this uh, particular series uh, really spoke to me. And it's, it's something that I've had on my mind for a while, that Cu Cuba and the Soviet Union's experience in the 70s is actually quite similar. And it's similar in the historiography. In historiography of Cuba, the 70s are such uh, a blur. Um, we automatically skip from so there's this major moment where um, pretty much in 1969, uh, Fidel, or it starts earlier, but 1969 is the main year where Fidel um, wants all Cubans to help produce 10 million tons of sugar. Um, because with those 10 million tons, they would pay off a debt to the Soviet Union and gain more control over their economy. Um, and unfortunately, it failed. Um, and so, which not by much, they, they still reached 8.5 million, which was something like 3 million more than they had the year before. So there was progress, but because it wasn't the, the lofty 10 million, it was considered a failure. And after this failure, um, Fidel pretty much said, we failed because there was a lack of moral values and commitment to work. And so it's, it starts this period of, um, you start to see vagrancy laws, 
There's a family code. There's a an effort to sort of um, go back to some of these more conservative values. But uh, Cuban historians have also uh, characterized Cuba's 1970s as the period of Soviet Soviet uh, Sovietization. <laughs> um, because uh, their effort to sort of decouple their economy from the Soviet Union was a failure, then they had to accept the Soviet Union and all of the ideas that they had. Um, and I would say that this was pretty main place in, in the historiography um, until maybe like five years ago. Um, now, with the works of someone like Isabel Story um, on Soviet influence on Cuba, um, but also Elizabeth Schwal, who is a fantastic scholar that looks at dance in the revolution. Um, they both showed that the 70s are not a time of um, just wholeheartedly accepting the Soviet model. In fact, Cubans are still in their own realms, uh, wherever they work, pushing back against um, Soviet bureauc bureaucracy, Soviet um, ideas, and um, I believe uh, it was Isabel Story's book that shows um, that in, in the realm of art that behind the scenes, they would even try to keep those Cubans who were trained in the Soviet Union out of leadership positions. Um, so this Sovietization isn't, um, isn't as true or as strong as we believe. But so the 70s are a period of sort of conservative values and some stagnation in the sense that um, that utopian vision of revolution has sort of died with this um, Zafra de los Diez Millones. Um, and similarly, in, uh, with Brezhnev's long reign, I mean, he's, uh, he is focused on science and technology to um, sort of reboot the economy. And, uh, but stagnation really only applies to the economy. And if you look at interactions, right, um, so here, um, there was, is it Julian First's book, um, Flower, yeah, Flower in the Concrete, um, or even, uh, Kristen Rothe's Moscow Primetime, uh, we see that when you look outside of the economy, uh, there's no real stagnation. There's actually a lot of dynamism and interaction. And we could even take scientific exchange as, um, as an example of that dynamism, the Soviet Union uh, is much more involved in Cuban science uh, throughout the 70s. And this is not because of uh, the idea that the 70s were of Sovietization, but rather because it, after a decade, they finally had the infrastructure <laughs> to work together and work efficiently. Um, so uh, these parallel experiences, um, they're just fascinating. Well, this goes to the question that I have, is, and that is, you know, today we hear uh, a lot of, you know, really wonderful things with Soviet, I mean, not Soviet, Cuban medicine, development of their own, like five different COVID vaccines, uh, Cuban doctors, and, and it sounds like there's a vibrant medical and scientific, uh, um, you know, research going on on the island. Um, so how did, how did, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, with the Soviet Union failing <laughs> and their promises to Cuba, how did the Cuban, how did Cuban science adjust? First, I, I, I want, I want to say that, um, medicine in Cuba had been sort of a priority in scientific culture well before 1959. 
um, because there's a long history of um, like finding the cure to yellow fever. And um, so we have these major symbols in Cuban history that allow medicine to be a place of um, just real pride for Cubans. And it's through the revolution. Um, essentially, the revolution wants to be able to make education and healthcare universal. And that is the greatest priority of all. Um, and so with that, that's how Cuban medicine really grows and gains the sort of special support and infrastructure um, to become what it has become. And then also the sort of, um, of course, the internationalism that goes with it when they send Cuban doctors, even to this day, um, to help other places in need. Um, but so after um, the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, there are shortages. There are shortages in antibiotics. Um, there are shortages in things like syringes. Um, so those those shortages are real. And um, it's part of the general uh, transition uh, through Cuba's special period where there's, there's austerity. Um, and it takes sort of the rebuilding of relations. And this actually, um, to the individual that spoke about uh, Canadian and Cuban um, collaboration, to, to this day, uh, the Canadians are the ones who are the most present in, um, like any time I've been to Cuba over the last six years, there's always some event going on with um, either in medicine with Canadians or the, the last time I was there right before or as the pandemic hit, there was actually a Canadian effort going on to spay and neuter um, stray animals because Cuba didn't, didn't have the means to do it. And so the Canadians come down every year and help do this on a mass scale. Um, so, you know, it, there is some like realignment with who is going to provide some of these some of these things that Cuba just has a shortage of, um, whether because of the embargo or, or other reasons internally. Um, but uh, they're, they're symbol as these selfless doctors that go internationally to help solve problems. That remains pretty strong. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine, too, from, you know, like you said, by the 1970s, the infrastructure Right by the seventies, you're getting now the new generation of so uh, of Cuban scientists, and that technical knowledge and that scientific knowledge is already present. So when the Soviet Union collapses, it may be a readjustment of certain partnerships, but the foundations are already existing in Cuban society as a result of of that the revolution and its changes in a long relationship with the Soviet Union. Yes. And uh, in fact, um, between 1959 and 1970, um, there's an increase in just medical uh, clinics from something like 57 to 200 and something like 218, 219. So there's this huge increase, even just in the availability of actual spaces where you can get medical care. Um, so, of course, uh, the actual um, like medicines and tools that you need to do the care. Um, those are important, but you have the spaces, you have the trained personnel, um, and it's just a matter of finding a new avenue to get those uh, necessary pieces. It, here's another uh, comment and question. Um, 
This person says, I've noticed that Mejera's magazine is that I'm pro probably not pronouncing that right. Um, I've been out of California too long. Uh, in the 1970s, sometimes published profiles of Soviet women scientists living in Cuba or of Soviet married couples, both of whom were scientists. Did you find any positive inspiration or perhaps conflicts around the presence of women scientists in either Cuba or USSR? That's the other issue, right? Is that you, the partnerships become actually permanent ones to some extent with marriage. Uh, so yeah, what, what about this issue? Yes. Um, Michelle, thanks so much for bringing this up. I am actually quite familiar with mujeres, um, which is just women. And it's, it's an issue by the... Uh, Federación de Mujeres Cubanas, so the Cuban Cuban Women's Federation. Um, I I actually used it for back when I was an undergrad for my senior thesis, so it has a special place in my heart. Um, but I I do remember seeing those articles about um, Soviet women in science because it was meant to almost almost like Big Sister. If Big Sister over in this foreign place has access to higher education and science. Like, that's what we should be striving for, too. And we will make it possible here in our own revolution. Um, and I also think back to um, Valentina Tereshkova, uh, the, the famous female astronaut, um, who, like, they devote an entire parade to her in Cuba, in Havana, um, as, like, the epitome of um, what a socialist revolution could do. Not only does it sort of break the barrier for women to enter science, which is something that we here in the U.S. are still very much struggling with, um, but a woman could be at the top of her field um, in her country and be uh, celebrated in a very serious way. Um, so, uh, yes, but at the same time, uh, to, you know, sort of even out this narrative, uh, I also look at Cuba's Institute of Oceanology, where, um, interestingly, the majority of Soviet experts are women. Um, and this was because, according um, to one uh, a Russian person that I interviewed, um, because in oceanology, like, if, say, if you're just sitting at a desk classifying plankton, um, it's seen as a very feminized kind of work. Unlike the geologists who are going into caves and doing all of these masculine activities. Um, so at, at once you have this sort of Valentina Tereshkova. Um, and on the other hand, you have like a feminization of certain sciences where women can be in science, but only in particular parts of science. That was Claire Ibarra. Claire Ibarra is a PhD candidate in history at UC Berkeley. Her dissertation examines scientific exchange between Cuba and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. She wants to understand how socialist ideology affected each country's approach to development, resource extraction, and decolonization. So I really, I really enjoy this interview, um, first and foremost, because I, I know absolutely nothing about Cuban-Soviet scientific exchanges to the point where I'd even know that they existed. Though in in retrospect, it's kind of kind of silly that I didn't think that that existed. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, and and I know very very little of um, the so Soviet-Cuban relationship to the point where I you know in the beginning of the interview, um, I'm basically that person who like 
who thinks, okay, Cuban Missile Crisis, that's kind of the, and then something happened in the 1990s after the Soviet Union collapsed. Like that's my <laughs> my my only real knowledge. I've never really delved into it. So I I, I learned a lot from this. Um, what were some of your thoughts uh, about the interview? Well, I have to confess, we're in the same boat of ignorance here, <laughs> which is even less acceptable for me since, I don't know, I'm from the former Soviet Union, so I should know a little more. Um, but yeah, that's definitely not something that you would learn in school or something, or even university, unless you take a special class on Soviet history or history of internationalism. So my, the like, a couple of things that I took away, maybe they're not like key moments, but I guess like moments that surprised me. Uh, drew my attention. I particularly appreciated uh, Claire's comments on the idea of conquering nature and uh, especially how it was understood in the Cuban context, right? So conquering nature was not something that was particular to socialism. That was uh, a trend around the globe in the 60s. And for Cubans specifically, it was about developing the ability, the tools, and the expertise to produce goods out of raw materials instead of just selling raw materials. And for me, I guess, uh, this issue occupies a very special place because it's the plight of Siberia and the Far East to this day. So yeah, it was just interesting to think through that concept with her uh, in a different way, because I think when we talk about conquering nature, it's not really about transforming nature into man-made goods. It's yeah, it is about extraction, I think, in like popular parlance. Uh, yeah, I want to I want to say something about that, because in in that line, one of the things that also um, interested me is her her statement about how the uh, a key component of the Cuban revolution was decolonization, right? Or to to assert Cuban sovereignty. And with this idea of resource extraction, and then depending, de depending on Soviet assistance and aid with this, it does create this potential contradiction where, yes, your two, you know, revolutionary brothers will walking lockstep, helping one another, but as we know, when it comes to resource extraction, there's also claims of ownership and control, uh, imperialism, you know, all of these things we know. And and I, I thought it was really interesting, the Cuban effort to maintain its sovereignty broadly, sovereignty over its actual material resources, but also sovereignty over its its path of development and, and its pushback against you know, to try to create some space and and flexibility within this dependence on the Soviet Union. Right. And uh, I guess another point that I wanted to highlight is connected directly to what you just said. Um, I was, yeah, I was fascinated by by their ability to navigate this complex field, right, to both accept Soviet aid and Soviet expertise, but also push against some of Soviet principles and, you know, really carving out a space for themselves in the global south as this beacon of light and seeing themselves as 
the country that is going to help other underdeveloped neighbors uh, with with the tools that they're able to get from the Soviet Union, even though they are not full on board with everything that the Soviet Union has to say or offer. What did you think of this notion of uh, revolutionary time? Oh, yeah, that was another really fascinating moment. Uh, I'd love to hear some of those interviews uh, with the people that she talked to, right? So here we have, you know, late socialist scientists who want to take it slow and, you know, plan everything and like, let's be realistic. And on the other side, we have these um, Cuban scientists really want to make it... (laughs) They all want to do like five years in three. And how can we uh, accelerate time? I found this a really interesting moment um, because it's something that uh, in in some of the scholarship that's been on the 1920s and 30s, there is this, and even to some extent, like Yuri Sloshkin's book, um, The House of Government, kind of deals with this eschatological notion of approaching, you know, which is very biblical based, but it, 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 it's like time is speeded up, right? And this whole notion, especially in, in say Stalinist development, it's like, and this is connected to this resource extraction, shaping nature. It's like, you know, Bolsheviks can conquer any fortress, right? Everything is, is, you know, the human will can just barrel through obstacles to achieve this revolutionary goal and it's it's it was it was interesting to to see by the 19th you know 60s and 70s revolutionary time in the soviet union has slowed considerably right where the the socialist system is now in state socialism is now kind of it's embedded it uh it's not necessarily you know though the there though there are ideological moments when they try to revive this you know enthusiasm for the construction of socialism, communism. But I, I just kind of imagine, you know, these no, these moments where you have these young Cuban uh, excited enthusiastics, you know, the revolution was just five years ago <laughs> or whatever. And they're coming against these, these Soviet officials, which who are, are, you know, much more conservative at this point uh, and, and how that interaction, you know, worked in terms of, dealing with how each understood even the approach to science. So, I mean, the rhetoric of overcoming is still there, right? It's just that ordinary people don't um, take it uh, at face value anymore. Um, There is another interesting moment, too, and that is uh, the issue of, of women in science, Right. This came up very late in the interview, thanks to a question one of the the people who were listening in on the live interview asked about, you know, how did how did Soviet and Cuban scientific relations work out the issue that you have women scientists? Um, And it also points to the opportunity, like the other aspect of that I thought was really fascinating that Claire talked about is that, you know, this whole thing of the Cuban revolution creating educational system and the Soviet system it was like this as well to make education and social mobility accessible to people who formerly didn't have it um what did you what did, what are your thoughts on this the women question in in the sciences and within the context of of state socialism 
I really appreciated Claire's nuanced description of how things went in Cuba regarding the uh, women question, right? So they were both celebrated. So she talked about Veronika Tireshkova and the parade in her honor and how she was celebrated for being at the top of her field. But at the same time, um, there were, right, there were scientific fields that were more appropriate for women, such as oceanology, because, you know, you just sit at your desk. Versus, say, like geology, where you just go and conquer that nature. Uh, right. And, and, you know, when I was listening to that, I remembered I've been watching a lot of Russian TV recently. It's my part of my ethnographic perversion. Um, and so there was this episode about uh, sports uh, and there was this uh, woman, an official, a government official, and she was talking about you know, new professions opening up for women. So, for example, finally, women in Russia can become uh, drivers, subway drivers, right? And I don't know, it was just like a deja vu. I was like, hmm, I heard it somewhere before. Um, I don't know. That, that I guess that just goes to, like, my own thoughts on how certain... Um, certain maybe like ideas or ethics from the Soviet time, or at least the rhetoric is being revitalized in the public domain and the media. And so it's like 2021 and I see this like government official talking about new female professions. Kind of a blast blast from the past of sorts. Yeah, and the other thing too, and I, I'd be really interested in this aspect. And I wonder, um, I'm sure somebody, at least in the Russia side, has worked on it. But I'd be curious to know on the Cuban side is, you know, these women who do, you know, work in the science sciences, regardless of the field, you know, they still have all the other burdens of home life on them. And I'm double wondering, burden. yeah, the double, the, the persistent double burden. And it, 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 of course, makes me wonder of how did they, how did you reconcile, you know, this in that system? Um, what, what difficulties and what, you know, was there any, how should I, how should I put this? Was there, was there any like institutional help? or not for, you know, women having to also manage the home life of the family, whereas male scientists just kind of probably just do what, you know, most males do in their career. They, they're not, they're not, you know, tied down by these, these real life issues as much. My knowledge here is very superfluous, but um, there was definitely some institutional help, right? So for example, in late social, in the late socialist period, uh, working women could have up to, and still today, can have up to three years of childcare support, right? So when you like leave your job and for the first 18 months you're being paid, for the next 18 months you're being unpaid, but like in three years time you can go back to your position. That's unheard of. I mean, like think about the U.S. and like the 12 weeks. Is it 12 weeks? Yeah, and it's not even it's not even a, a, a federal law, right? Twelve weeks if your employer is gracious enough to provide that, <laughs> right? And and pay too is also if your employer is gracious enough to 
you know, provide that. Um, yeah, the American system, and this is a, as you know, a persistent complaint about how there's just no, no standardized, federally supported maternity leave, which is just, it's not a modern, this is not a modern society, <laughs> in my view, if you don't provide these things, <laughs> right? And now don't, don't even get yeah. me started on this. And when we hear about this whole Texas abortion law, I'm like, you want women to give birth? Like, help them financially, provide them with opportunities. Like, don't just ban abortions. That's not why they're not having kids. They're not having kids because it's impossible to raise them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and we could, we could certainly, we could certainly go on and on about that. <laughs> um, so, so I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novakova. The SRB podcast, as you know, is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to share it on social media. It only takes a moment. Tell your friends about it uh, when you're having drinks with them or dinner. Or, and you also are invited to drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or on the srbpodcast.org contact page and let us know what you think, uh, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, what we could do better. And as always, if you like the SRB podcast, we love your support. The SRB podcast and all of its various programming is a nonprofit educational endeavor. It relies on the support of individuals and educational institutions to keep it completely free of to keep it completely free to listeners without any advertisements or paywalls. So please help us keep it that way by going to the srbpodcast.org and joining the table of ranks. Until next week. Bye.